If you don't know this about me, you need to know that I hate camping. Hate camping. Um, I really hate it. I, I don't like bugs. I don't like packing and unpacking. Um, I don't like getting involuntarily wet, either because it's too hot and I'm sweating or because it's raining. Uh, I don't like sleeping on the ground. I really only like sleeping between the temperatures of 55 and 72. Now, if you were to do psychoanalysis on me, you would find out that all those reasons I just gave for why I hate camping are really pretty superficial. Uh, you would find out that I've had some really terrible, some might even say traumatic camping experiences. Uh, the first was Boy Scouts. My dad made me do Boy Scouts. He never made me do anything, but he made me do Boy Scouts. I didn't want to do Boy Scouts. There's no one in this Boy Scout troop who I knew, and I hated it. The second thing that happened was my mom and dad decided to purchase a pop-up camper. You know what a pop-up camper is? You, you undo the hooks on the corners, and then you crank that thing up, and then you push the, the beds out on the sides. Uh, it's just a cheap camper. I mean, that's what a pop-up camper is. Well, our pop-up camper had shag, orange, and brown upholstery over the entire thing. I hated it. Uh, another time, my dad... Um, I really love my dad. A lot of these stories have to do with my dad. Uh, my dad uh, decided for, for, uh, for when I graduated high school, he wanted to take me on a camping trip. So he took me to Canada. Uh, we were roughing it. We had everything in our packs. And we forged these uh, different trails. And we set up campsite. And one morning, we took our canoe to go fish. And um, we ended up, we couldn't come back because the wind was too hard. So all we had were our fishing poles and a canoe. And we slept on the ground uh, on the side of the lake, not at our campsite. And then it rained. Uh, the worst was probably for, was, was with Jenna. Jenna and I, on our, for our one-year anniversary, uh, we went to Colorado, and we didn't camp the whole time, but we wanted to camp one night. We, camp, we camped up into the mountains. Uh, we set up our tent, this beautiful view, and uh, maybe an hour after we had fallen asleep, we heard for the rest of the night something sniffing around our tent. Trauma. I hold that trauma in my body. I mean, the orange and brown shag carpet. Uh, the, the, the uncomfortable, terrifying nights of no sleep. I hate being outside. I don't think I'm ever going to recover. You won't get me to go camping. It just it isn't going to happen. But that's the kind of the thing with the outdoors, isn't it? It's unpredictable. It's not entirely safe. But at the same time, it's the unpredictable, and it's the potential dangers that open up a world of adventure. Adventure. For instance, there are certain things that you can only see if you're willing to camp. You can't hike 30 miles to certain peaks, certain overlooks, and certain waterfalls in one day. So you have to camp for 15 miles, or you have to walk 15 miles, you have to camp, and you have to walk 15 more miles before you reach your destination. And the adventure's thrilling, at least so I hear. And I think this is an apt metaphor for life as Christians. Many of us prefer life indoors. We prefer life in the church. We like the church. We're doing Christian things. It feels safe. We can assume we're around fellow Christians. We can understand what's going on because it's what we're used to. But it's life on the outside that makes us nervous. What will happen if we bring up the gospel? Will we be shunned? Well, what's going to happen when I interact with someone who looks different than me, who has had vastly different life experiences, and who sees the world 
through a different set of cultural lenses. So for you, you might not be scared of bugs, bears, and tents. But it's still scary, life on the outside. So what do we do? We just stay inside. And that's why we're doing this whole thing of Camp Hope. We're going to talk about this in worship. We're going to talk about it in neighborhood groups. We're going to talk about what life is like for our church on the outside. In short, here's what we're going to do. Tonight, we're going to do this 30,000-foot view of why life on the outside is really good for us. And then the next three weeks, we're going to address a different type of life on the outside. We're going to talk about serving the poor. We're going to talk about doing racial reconciliation. And we're going to talk about reaching the unchurched, those who are disinterested in the gospel. Those three groups. I mean, those three groups pretty much sum up who lives in our neighborhood. So that's who we're going to address. And then weeks five and six, we're going to talk about the role that relationships and beauty play as we do life on the outside, as we serve the poor, as we do racial reconciliation, and as we reach the lost. So tonight, this 30,000-foot view, I can't think of a better place than Genesis 12. The calling of Abraham. Let's read the first three verses together. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The word of the Lord. All right, so three points tonight. We're going to look at what God does to us, through us, and for us. To us, through us, for us. To us. We see it there in in, in verse 2. But when you get to verse 1 of chapter 12, you don't know hardly anything about Abram. You get a few details at the end of chapter 11. At the end of chapter 11, you see that he's got his dad, whose name is Terah. You see that that Abraham's married, and he's married to Sarah. But that's about it, except for Sarah's barren. She can't have children. So it, it really would shock Abraham to hear God say, I'm going to make you into a great nation because Abraham and Sarah are old their years for having children they've come and gone and now they're being promised to be a great nation well they're going to be a great nation they're going to need lots of offspring and lots of time and Abraham and Sarah have neither because if they're going to become a great nation it's going to have to be a miracle of all miracles But God keeps heaping on the blessing. He says, you will be a great nation. And then he says, I will bless you. This general overall blessing. And you see the third one? I will make your name great. In other words, we've got this grand reputation. It's like God is taking his dump truck of of blessing and dumping it all right there into their lap. It's more than Abraham expected. But it's also more than any reader who's ever read Genesis 1 to 12 would expect. Because here's what you read in Genesis 1 to 12. Sure, Adam and Eve are made. They're made in the image of God. It's glorious. The Garden of Eden is stupendous. But things go go downhill fast starting in chapter 3. Because they rebel against God. They're kicked out of the garden. 
In chapter 4, you immediately see the consequences of the fall. You have Cain, Adam and Eve's son, kills their other son, Abel. Awful. Then in Genesis chapter 6, you start reading about Noah, and God gives his evaluation of what mankind has turned into. In verse 5 of chapter 6, he says that the wickedness of mankind had become so great that the intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And because mankind had gotten to this place, God sends a flood and wipes out the whole human race except for Noah and his people. Bleak. You read a couple more chapters, you get to chapter 11, and they build this thing called the Tower of Babel. They build the Tower of Babel because they want to impress themselves and they want to impress God. It doesn't work. So God judges them. So when you finish reading the Tower of Babel account in chapter 11, you get the impression that God might just wipe his hands free of these people. Their decline from their glory in chapters 1 and 2 has been steep. And if I were God, I would have have been tempted to give up. But that's not what happens. God does something radical to Abram, even in spite of all of mankind's rebellion. And the thing that he does to Abram is that he blesses him. So you see, the story of Genesis 1 to 11, it's not just a story about antiquity. It's also the story about me and you. See, we're descendants of Adam and Eve. We have their DNA. We have experienced the consequences of the fall, just like Cain and Abel. The description found of all mankind in Genesis chapter 6, 5 is a pretty apt description for me. And I'm just like those people in Genesis chapter 11. I want to impress, I want to be impressive to myself, to others, and to God. I might not want to build a tower, but I want to build a family and a church that draws admirers. Yet in spite of all that, God wants to do something to me, and he wants to do something to you. He wants to bless you. Now, that should perplex you, confound you, bewilder you, dumbfound you, even baffle you. How can a holy God, whom I've sinned against, do good things to me when all I deserve is his wrath? How could he do it? What's his grace? See, God has planned and provided our salvation. He's put forth a mediator through his blood who accomplishes salvation on our behalf. God is the innocent, offended party. And he's the one who offers up his son, his beloved son, his valuable son, to satisfy his righteous wrath to save the guilty party, me and you. So you see, Christian, how God has blessed you. Sure, he might have blessed you because he's given you the job you have, the clothes you wear, the shelter you get to live under. Maybe he blessed you because every light was green on Tate's Creek Road and you got here in time for church. But the real blessing of being a Christian is the forgiveness of sin. It's great news. But that's not where the great news stops in 
Genesis 12. The, the, the blessing of being in relationship with God like Abraham, like me and you get to be, keeps going as we are now meant not just have something done to us, but God wants to do something through us. You see that, that threefold blessing that they're going to be a great nation. He's going to bless them and he's going to make their name great. How come? For what reason? So they might be a blessing. And this was when Abraham first meets God, right here in Genesis 12. He meets God, he gets blessed, and then he gets commissioned. And that's what happens in lots of encounters that we see in the scriptures. This was Moses. Moses had known about God his whole life. Moses, in this miraculous way, got to be reared by his mother. And his mother would have taught him everything about the, about the faith. And so when Moses, through a, a strange series of events, ends up in the desert in Midian, and there's a burning bush, he encounters God there. He not just encounters God for himself. He gets commissioned to go back to Egypt and to set the people free. You remember that? Isaiah chapter 6. God comes to Isaiah and he forgives him. of He atones for his sins and he releases him from his guilty conscience. What a glorious blessing. But then God in verse 8 of Isaiah chapter 6 says, I want you to go preach to a hard-hearted people. They're never going to listen to you. So the blessing and commissioning happen at the same time. Peter, Luke chapter 5, first time that Peter sets his eyes on Jesus, Jesus tells him where to put his net. He's out there fishing, puts his net on one side of the boat, and he gets more fish than he can bring in. And as he's bringing it in, Jesus tells Peter, you're no longer going to catch fish, now you're going to catch men for God. He gets commissioned to a whole life of ministry. So when we see this happen to Abraham, it happens to the other's biblical characters, you and I aren't any different because God only blesses you so that you can bless someone else. And man, that's hard for us in our consumer mentalities, isn't it? We run everything through the grid of what is this going to do for me? We think that way about everything. Where to live, how to spend our time, what job to take, who to date, decisions around children, where to go to church, how to be involved in church, and even how to relate to God. What is this going to do for me? And if we live through that lens, the dirty little lie that we believe is that we will actually become joyful and happy. But it's a lie. See, the happiest, most joyful people are those who know that they have something that will change the world. The most joyful, happy people are those who know they have something more than their own aches and pains. The most joyful, happy people are those who live their whole life thinking, how might I bless people with the gospel today? Let me give you a, just a, a little example. This is from my life this week. So uh, many of you know, uh, this is the first time I've ever been a lead pastor. It's new territory for me. I worked in the nonprofit world. I was assistant here at Tate's Creek. And uh, making the transition to lead pastor has not been easy. Lots of lessons to be learned, lots of reflecting to do, to think back on, to think, hey, how might this go differently into the future? And as I do all that thinking, I'm just thinking, how am I do my job better? I'm thinking about what kind of sanctification God's doing in my life. What, what, what idols is he revealing? Where do I need to repent? 
I'm thinking about where do I need to, to put my faith in Jesus in new and different ways. See, I'm thinking that this whole experience really is just for me. How I might be more holy and how I might be a better pastor. But this week, I began to think about it differently. What if all these lessons are things that I can bless the next generation of pastors? You know, we just heard Jared's finishing up seminary, starting here as an intern. Here at Tate's Creek, there's four guys in the same boat. And I found myself thinking, maybe this whole learning experience is less about me and more about others. Maybe I'm going through this so that I can stand with, empathize, and teach these younger guys who want to pastor. It flipped everything for me. And see, these experiences for me as a pastor that I'm learning about aren't for me. They're for them. Neither is my money for me. Neither is my time for me, my gifts, my relationships, my network, my house, my car, my yard. None of it's for me. God's given me all these things to give to others. And the same is true for you. Same is true for all of God's people. What God does to us, he blesses us so that he might do something through us. And that makes us all missionaries. We're all instruments of God's grace. So you see, God does something to us. He blesses us. And God does something through us. He blesses others. But then verse 3, we see what God does for us. Verse 3 drips God being for us. See, God is so for his people that he curses those who curse us and he blesses those who bless us. In other words, he defends us from our enemies and he builds for us a team of allies. That's how totally on board God is being for us. And you're going to need that kind of support as a missionary. It's a tough world out there. You've got to wrestle with this three-headed monster the three-headed monster of your indwelling sin. When you go out on the mission field, when you start living and outwardly faced, you're just, your sin just gets more exposed. You also see Satan alive and well. You also see that there's an evil world out there to contend against. And so when you go out into the world... You face this three-headed monster, you're going to need to know that God is for you. If you don't know God's for you, you're going to end up choosing to stay home. You're going to sit inside, and you'll just keep the blessing to yourself. And that's the temptation of the church at large. That's the temptation for our church, and that's the temptation for me. See, when I look at my life and I look at our church, I am just amazed, really, at what God has done in us the last five years. I look at all the obstacles that God had to overcome to make sure that this thing took root. There were lots of junctures where our fledgling little church could have been split by division. There have been those who have opposed the work. You've had to deal with having a green pastor with his own failings. Yet God has done something with us. He's established our corporate worship He's built strong bonds between us. We've embraced beauty as a key component for our whole well-being. And for the most part, not perfectly, but this is a place you can struggle. I'm just so encouraged that God's done this among us. But there's one place that I long for God to bring more growth. 
And it's in this whole thing of being a blessing to our neighborhood and to our neighbors. And that's why we're drilling down into this with Camp Hope. So where should we start? (laughs) We start there with that first word in verse 1. First thing that God says, go. Go. Abraham had to leave before he got blessed. See, it's in the going where the blessing happens. Because if you'll get off the mat with your presence, with your time, and with your money, God will bless you. It might not be materially. It wasn't for Abram. But it's real. You'll begin to know what it's like for God to build allies for you. You'll know what it's like for him to defend you against enemies. You'll know what it's like for him to use you to be a blessing to others. Go. Think about Jesus. There's a time in his life where Jesus heard audibly. He heard the Father say, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Wouldn't you love to hear God say that to you? This is my daughter. This is my son. In whom I am well pleased. Communicates value, love, that you matter. It's what we all want. But you know when Jesus heard this? He heard this right after he started his public ministry. He heard it just as he started to go and you and I will be tempted to say I'm not going until I hear that (laughs) I'm not going until I've got that kind of commendation but that's not how it works so we just keep saying I'll start doing things for God when I get my ducks in a row I'll start doing things for God when I'm spiritually mature I'll start doing things for God when I get my finances in order when I kick this bad habit when I get married when I retire when my kids are on the house when I when I when I But see, brother and sister, God doesn't need you to have it all put together. He's really good at using you in all your brokenness. So will you go? Let's pray. Oh, Father, we do long uh, to over and over again know the commendation that comes from your love. And so, Lord, I pray that we would have the faith to believe that it's coming, and Lord, that we would go. Help us in the weeks ahead. Help us apply this in a million different ways, and as many different people as are in this room or could ever hear this, Lord, that that's the many different ways that this is applied. Holy Spirit, spark our imagination how you might use us. In Christ's name, amen.